What, a, what an arrival, sneaking in the back door of Bethlehem that dark night when there was no room in the inn. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for worship today. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us in worship. Man, I don't know how we can sing, you have no rival, you have no equal, without it changing who we are. Mm. Okay, I have to settle down, or maybe not settle down, but... (laughs) I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles or whatever device you look at the Scriptures from, we're going to read a little bit of an extended passage. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord showed round them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Father, as we... Share a little bit of your word together. I pray that the spirit that inspires worship would inspire all that we do. Amen. That the time we spend here will bring us closer to you. We'll strengthen our walk with you. We'll make us more like Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. We've been talking about the story of Christmas and the realities of it. One of the things that I am convicted of and have been for a long time, um, and I think that I, I, uh, I owe some of this thinking to uh, my arrival on the scene as a Seventh-day Adventist when I was 17. I, I had spent uh, a, a, some time in churches. I had been around churches. I was growing up. I had been to various places where things were taught about Jesus, and I, I didn't disagree with any of them. I wasn't uh, in opposition to God. I wasn't trying to do or be something else. I just had no real connection or relationship, but I started attending a Seventh-day Adventist church and eventually ended up in a a Seventh-day Adventist evangelistic series, which those of you who have been through a Seventh-day Adventist evangelistic series, at least the ones that uh, were seven weeks long when I was a kid, know that they cover everything from soup to nuts, right? And, um, and this particular preacher did all of that. He covered everything A to Z the first time. And I was 17. I was absorbing a little and not absorbing everything. But I was, I was connecting, following, getting it. And his, he was interesting. And um, he had one of the people in the church, in fact, Rita Tompkins, who was prayed for today, was writing all of his notes on the board as he was talking, which was cool because there was an animated factor in what was going on. If you got bored with looking at him, you could watch her write things on the board and follow the notes. And it was easy to know what you were supposed to fill in on the blank because she was writing it on the board. 
It's a beautiful thing. It was before we had PowerPoint and all that sort of stuff. And so she was PowerPoint. Then for whatever reason, and I've told you this before, he came back a few months later and did the exact same series, word for word, letter for letter, same lady writing on the, ch- on the whiteboard. Or maybe it was a chalkboard. I bet it was a chalkboard. I was 17 after all. <laughs> I'm not even sure whiteboards were around when I was 17. I don't know. But. Anyway, same lady writing, uh, writing up there, writing the same things, and, and it got in past some filters that had been there the first time, and I began to recognize the, the, the flow of things. Things started to connect that hadn't connected the first time. Hearing it a second time, just a few months later, started to bring some things together. And as it started to do that, it started to, I started to realize that a relationship with God is actually logical. Before that, I had just kind of considered a a relationship with God something that you took on faith and you just kind of accepted a bunch of stuff, whether it was true or not, you just did it. And as I began to see this the second time and the pieces started really falling together, I was actually anticipating what he was going to say next because my brain had it freshly enough in my mind. Being 17, I could still recall things that had happened three months before. Being 56, it's not quite as easy as it used to be. But, I, but all those things that he had said before had started to line up and I was anticipating the next thing based on what he was saying and realizing, oh, I get it. These things connect together. Now, obviously he knew that. He was the one sharing it. But it first dawned on me that second time through. And since that time, I have assumed that a relationship with God should make sense. That your faith isn't based on ether, that your faith is, is based on some anchors that God puts in place. Now here's the weird thing about faith, is if you start to put your faith in anchors that are not real, it undermines the things that are real. You with me? If you put faith in things that are not real, that are not true, that are demonstrably untrue, then the things that are true begin to weaken. Because you start to erode what is true with what isn't true. So I, I, I put up in, on the screen for your pleasure this morning a, a picture of the, the classic sort of crash, the manger scene. There it is in front of you. And if you look at it, look at the participants there. Um, first of all, everybody's clean. People lived in a dusty world, traveled on dusty animals. The cleanliness factor is probably not true. Second of all, they are in a stable made for Germans. The Germanics have taken over the world and being Germanic, I feel comfortable here. But that is not a Bethlehem sort of a stable. Yet when you look at most of the ones constructed for our viewing pleasure, that's what they look like. They've got that little wooden structure in the back. The reality is it's probably not legitimate. As we shared back a few weeks ago, that Jesus was probably born in a cave with a little fence around it. Those are still used today to house animals when their shepherds are out in the fields. And it is likely where Jesus was born in Bethlehem because it was fairly common practice. And the church of the nativity is built over a cave where it is believed Jesus was born. I think it's the right cave. I think it's the right town. I think it's the right context. It makes sense, that little wooden structure, not so much. It's nice, but it's probably a bit of one of those fables you hang onto that isn't necessarily so. In there, you see the angel. See the angel in the back? 
He's hanging out, got his hands folded. She, it, angels are always hard to tell. And then you have the guy with the fishing pole and the star. You notice him? I'm trying to figure that another angel. Is that a prop man? Who is that guy? Then you got a couple little baby angels. They look like Cupid out front here. And maybe baby angels come with baby kids. I don't know. But those guys, nothing about angels and nothing about guys with fishing poles and stars. None of that's in the Bible. So if you're reading your Bible and you're looking for those guys, they're not there. The problem is that those images begin to lay into our brain layers of things that aren't true. And when we start to think about the story, recount the story, read the story, we're looking for things that aren't even there. Note that on, the, on, on your left-hand side, you see the three kings. One of them is bowing down. That's one of the situations there. A couple things about these kings. Number one, the kings were not present at the, at the stable. Almost guaranteed. You know how? You know how we guarantee this? Because Herod had all the babies killed two months and younger. Because, or two years and younger. Because of what these guys told him. Of the time they saw the sign and began their trip. We also have in this manger scene, apparently the shepherds brought some sheep with them. We always put a sheep in this. In fact, I had a friend when I was in Israel the very first time. He got a, one of these manger scenes carved out of olive wood and it had one sheep. And he so desperately wanted another sheep that he started asking everybody he saw who, was car- who had those things, could I buy a sheep from you? And everybody wanted 20 bucks for a sheep. And he's not paying 20 bucks for a sheep. And so the last time I was in an olive wood place for him in the old city, He's inside. I was trying to buy cups for our church to use for communion service. And the guy wanted five bucks a cup. And I couldn't afford to pay five bucks a cup for, for all, those, all those cups. And so I left him in there dickering with this guy about his sheep and my cups. By the time he finished, he bought the entire box of cups for $20. And he got the sheep for a buck. I don't know if the guy made money or not on that day, but I know that this guy loved it and the, and the owner of the shop loved it. When I left them, they were both enjoying this conversation about the price. He put a couple of sheep in there because he figured if the shepherds brought sheep, they wouldn't just bring one. You got more shepherds than one, you should bring more sheep than one. But in reality, the Bible doesn't say there were anybody in there, any other sheep. And in fact, it doesn't even say where the, that there were animals. It just says there were, it was a place for keeping the animals. Now, usually you find him in here. He's not in this one, and maybe that's good. You usually find a donkey in the crash, right? Why do you have a donkey there? Because Mary rode the donkey. Where does it say that in the Bible? It's an assumption that a pregnant woman wouldn't walk 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But that's an assumption of a later century where pregnant women didn't walk 70 miles. Maybe the 70 miles is the reason she had the baby that night. <laughs> 69, she'd have been fine. That last mile over the hill, that did it. There's no donkey in the story. But yet you and I have a donkey in there. We have, the donkey is so, so legitimized that almost any Christmas picture with Mary, she's sitting on a donkey. Not in the story. I just want you to know that around this story, around this scene, we've built a lot of things that are not biblically there. And when you build and anchor things you think you understand and believe on things that aren't true, things that aren't biblical, 
it weakens your argument for the things that are. This is not just true about Christmas, but be careful in the other aspects of your faith because we often find ourselves filling in gaps when we can't prove them biblically. This is bad enough for a person who's a believer, but imagine trying to tell a non-believer the story of Christmas and including things they can't find in their Bible. Right? And then they bring back the Bible and say, okay, I, I, w- number one, where are these kings? Uh, where, where's the sheep in the stable? What did, I don't see any animals listed here. What, what about Mary and this donkey? And they go through the whole list of things that you have just included in the story out of the nature of telling the story. And there it's not in the scriptures. Part of the reason we've been doing this Christmas It Really Happened series is to to emphasize the parts that really happened. To emphasize the things you can hang your faith on for sure. And to really kind of commit ourselves to understanding that that's a cool picture. It's probably not really super factual. And can we accept that it's a cool picture and a nice thing to celebrate all the participants? But it's more of a stage play than the actual night of the birth of Jesus. Can we be with that? As long as we understand that's where we are and we understand that that's what we're dealing with, we're good. We'll be fine. So I wanted to just go through quick realities from what we've been talking about so far. Number one realities, Bethlehem is a real place. Bethlehem is the right place. It's the right place for shepherds to be out in their field. It's the right place for Mary and Joseph children of the family of David, to be coming, to be taxed at that point. That this business of not being able to find a place for them to lay their heads and not being able to find a place in the inn is legitimate. This is one of the few little towns in the area that actually had an inn. You find the inn mentioned in the book of Jeremiah when they're getting ready to escape to Egypt. They stopped there at, at this inn. It's one of the common things they would do. They would prepare to cross the deserts headed for Egypt by gathering there, getting their supplies, getting things ready, resting the animals, etc. before they would leave. So this, this inn is probably a very legitimate piece of the story. Bethlehem holds all of the right things. When you go to the Church of the Nativity, as, as distracting as the whole thing is with all of the menagerie of stuff going on that has nothing to do with what's happened in that, in that space, there is a cave under the altar and it's the right kind of a place in the right the right town at the right time things line up and things make sense make sense bethlehem i think is a legit place to anchor your faith in christmas number two caesar augustus and his taxation policies one it's the right guy he's in it's the right time frame for caesar augustus there's not a king named that's far off in some weird place in some distant land time frame doesn't fit this is a historically accurate person this is the right guy it's the right guy. His, his tax policies are also right. We don't have records around Bethlehem, but we have records in Egypt of him telling people they had to go to their hometown in order to be taxed, in order to be counted, in order to be taxed. It was actually twofold. You go to your hometown, they count the population, and then they figure out what the taxes are going to be for each person. So this story we read about them being sent home for, the taxation, for taxation purposes is legitimate. It fits historically. It makes sense in the context of the flow of time at this time in history. Number three, the stable and the manger. The idea that somebody would sleep in a barn to us in the modern times is a little bit odd, but back then, very, very common thing for a person who didn't have a place to sleep that night to do. It was very common for somebody to invite you to sleep in the barn if you didn't have a place to lay your head. Now, it was not all that unlike sleeping in the house in some of these people's lives. It was not uncommon for people who lived where there were wild animals 
to invite the animals into their house, or at least under their house, in the lower story of their house, to protect the animals at night. So the first thing you would do when you'd go downtown, downstairs to, to, uh, cl- to uh, begin to prepare breakfast is run all the animals back outside. It was a great twofold thing for the families that protected the animals, and the animals provided a little heat that would rise up through to the second story where most people slept. It's not uncommon for people to sleep in the context of animals at the time. And the fact that Jesus would be laid in a manger, where else would you put him? You going to throw him on the ground? You're going to put him down there where they, whoever had been wandering around that day, leaving behind their, uh, their uh, markings? Or would you clear out the food trough, put some fresh hay or whatever you could in there to, to make it comfortable, wrap this baby up and lie him down where he was off the ground? Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That the story starts to make sense. And the Magi, this is an interesting term because it's the right term for people from the East who were priests of Zoroastrianism at this time in history. The, the Persian, country, per, Persian nation is run by the Parthians. This is the group of people among the Parthians who would fit this profile. They were stargazers. These people were normal stargazers. They were dream interpreters. You know that they do both within the story. They watch stars and they follow stars and they interpret dreams. The fact that Israel has had an influence in that portion of the country since 700 B.C., the fact that these people are monotheists, the fact that they may have run into Daniel's, uh, Daniel's prophecy and Balaam's prophecy and be looking for a Messiah at this time, it all lines up. It all makes sense. There's anchors here for your faith in Christmas. And then Herod's behavior. I put him last because he deserves to be last. Herod was a really bad character. He was a bad actor. He was evil if there's any such thing. Herod killed family members, friends, rivals of all kinds. He killed his, one of his wives. There's this interesting thing. I just, we just learned on this last trip to Israel. There are three towers built at the entrance to the city that Herod built to magnify family members of his, a wife and a couple of, uh, a, a wife, a son, and, a, and a, a brother, all three of whom he later killed. It's the kind of guy he was. Think of how heartless you would have to be to send your soldiers in to kill off the children of Bethlehem two years and younger. It's a horrible act, but it's the right kind of guy to perform that kind of act. So the pictures fit together. It makes sense. It works. And I just want, as we talk about the Christmas story, what I wanted to do throughout this Christmas season is say this is a real story. This is a factual thing. The facts make sense of the bits and pieces we're told in the Bible. They line up. And if, we're, if you continue reading, you'll find that, that on the eighth day, they, Jesus is circumcised and then actually given the name Jesus. This was normal practice. That on the 40th day, that they went to the temple and they made an offering of two turtle doves and two pigeons. This was actually for, the, for her cleansing after the pregnancy. And they make this offering at the end of this time. They make the offering of a, of a poor family. They make the offering of, a, of the family that couldn't afford to bring a lamb. And so this is the substitute offering, two turtle doves, two pigeons as, uh, as offerings for her, her cleansing for this moment when she was, she was done with the pregnancy and the cleansing of the pregnancy. By the way, if she'd had a girl, it was 80 days. Boy, 40 days. And before you say that's just terrible, it might have been, but because a young 
baby, a baby girl, could also come into the world. Um, words have to be delicately used. Because a young baby could come into the world um, with the product of her cycle, you had the mother taking the time of cleansing for herself and for the daughter. If you line up all of those things scripturally, that's why it's 80 days. It's not just we hate women first century style. It actually had a purpose within the context of the times. All of the pieces make sense and line up as long as we don't kind of conglomerate them into this package that we throw out there in the crash. It makes sense. You can anchor your faith in these things. They're real. They fit the historical context. So today I wanted to move on to the next sort of actors in the story. The next, the next ones I want to emphasize are the shepherds. These shepherds from Bethlehem. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. We know that story. We, we, you probably have images of this in your mind, right? You probably have some kind of picture. Maybe it's one that's stuck in your head from a Christmas card you received when you were a child. But you have a picture of these shepherds out in the field. So I want you to imagine shepherds out in the field. What do you have? Is the sky kind of blue? Is there one of those big Christmassy spiky stars up ahead of them? You know, whatever it is that's in your mind, what, that, that picture that you have of the shepherds out in the field watching over their flocks. I want you to hold that in your head as we start talking about this. This last year, this in fact, just a few weeks ago, we went to what's known as the Shepherd's Field. It's actually a, a, a little monastery there built on top of some archaeological diggings that were, again, first century, pointing towards this certain set of fields as the place where the shepherds that night would have been. In fact, um, let's see, what are we? Next week on Christmas Eve, there will be a processional from the shepherd's field to the church of the nativity. There'll be another professional processional from Jerusalem, from the, the, the uh, another church down to the down to the church of the nativity as well. And these two will meet, and that's this great conglomeration of Christian worshipers in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve because of the birth of Jesus in that location. This shepherd's field place sits on a bluff looking out over the valleys that flow between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It's a beautiful location even today. You can look off in the distance. You can see what our apartment's actually in the distance now in, on the hills in Jerusalem. But you can start to see the rolling hills up toward Jerusalem. And that's the, this is the sort of place where the shepherds would have been. It makes sense. Again, it's the, the logical place. It's logical for a lot of reasons, and we'll get into some of those. Um, <clears throat> I want to look at this as a, as a piece of support from the negative. This is one of my favorite biblical realities. The Bible tells the good, bad, and the ugly in the story. Right? If I told you before, if I were writing the Bible, you would have never heard about David and Uriah's wife. You know, you wouldn't have heard the story. David would have just taken another wife and they had a baby named Solomon and all of that stuff that had happened the year before would have never made the text because I would have been trying to honor David. I wouldn't have told you the bad side of the story. I wouldn't tell you this guy was a, 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 a wretched guy for this period of, the, of a year. I wouldn't have told you the story. I would have wanted to uplift everybody, wouldn't you? 
Would you have told the good, bad, and the ugly? Or would you have held some things back? See, most of us have a propensity when we want to convince somebody of the truth of something to only tell the good side of the story. The Bible tells the good side and the bad side. It goes along with, the, with, the, with this process here in the story, the issue of the surrounding the pregnancy of Mary. This is an embarrassment to the early church. This is an embarrassment to the Jewish community. This is an embarrassment for her to have been found with child before they were married. The circumstances of that birth, the fact that this baby had to be born in a barn. As much as it was common for people to do this, it was not common for people of high rank like the Messiah to be born in a barn. The the circumstances around the birth would have pushed against the idea that this was actually the king of kings. Why would God allow something like this to happen to his own son? The fact that these guys who came, the Magi, were foreign priests and that the priests in Jerusalem didn't recognize Jesus, the comparison would have thrown most Jews for a loop. How could the Messiah be recognized by foreign priests but not recognized by our own high priest? It would have been a very difficult piece for people to get. The story's negative pieces actually support the validity of the story. The shepherds are part of that negative. There were shepherds in that same country living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Here's the deal. Shepherds were not cool. Shepherds were not a part of the good people. These were not the people you had over for Christmas. You left them out in the field watching their sheep because they come into your house. Your house has to go through an entire cleansing ritual and that's a bummer nobody wants to deal with at Christmas time. And yet here they are in the story. Here's some points in Zephaniah chapter 2. I like to be able to quote Zephaniah because we never use him. Zephaniah chapter 2, he describes what happens when a land becomes accursed. When Gaza becomes accursed and forsaken, you, O sea coast, speaking of Gaza, it's on the coast, shall be pastures with meadows and shepherds and folds for flocks. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be so ugly for you that you're going to be a place where shepherds and sheep hang out. That's how bad it's going to be for you. Do you get it? Do you get the tenor of it? Then Amos, when he's describing to Amaziah, who's threatening him, saying, you can't come here, stop prophesying to to our tribes, go to Jerusalem and talk to those people. Amos answers Amaziah and he says, I was no prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet. I love the fact that people quote this all the time. Next time you hear someone quote that, you should say, do you know where that is? Do you know where that comes from? I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. This is like saying, I was not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I was a shepherd. He's, he's lowering himself down the rungs of the ladder before he lets him have it and says, but God told me to tell this to you, so I don't care what you think. I was a shepherd. What can you do to me? I was a shepherd. You're going to demote me? You get the picture? You get the picture? You can't demote me. I was a shepherd. Okay? In the Mishnah... Now, the Mishnah is the recording of the arguments about how you live your life, okay? What you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to live a spiritual life. In the Mishnah, there's an argument back and forth that you don't need to be obligated to rescue a shepherd who falls in a pit. If you walk by and you find a carpenter in a pit, well, you should help him out. If you find a priest in the pit, well, you certainly should rescue him. If you find a shepherd in the pit, well, you know, don't get your clothes dirty. Because the the idea that a shepherd needed your help, well, 
He needs to get another shepherd to help him. Because if you, if you get in there and you sully yourself with the shepherd, you're going to find yourself unclean, and then you've got to go back to that old cleansing ritual. And nobody wants to do that. You know, shepherds, they're hanging around sheep. Sheep are dirty. They're always, hanging, they're always touching blood and feces and birth stuff. It's just, it's just a nasty job. Nobody should want to do it. You know what's crazy about this? The founder... Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. The whole gang going to Egypt were shepherds. Remember, the Egyptians were also offended by shepherds, and they made them go off into a land by themselves. Shepherds. These guys had, had really forgotten where they came from. Now, can we just stop for a second and take that in and ask, have I? Right? Sometimes we start going to school and we get education and we get degrees and we get nice jobs and our paychecks start to grow and we forget who we really are. Now, it sneaks in at times, right? When, you, when you're invited to go do something, for me, it's like going skiing or something. You invite me to a bowling alley, I feel at home. You invite me to the ski slopes, it's like, oh, man, this is not a place where I belong. This is, these are not my people. And, and, I, and really, if I were to sit down for a minute with myself and say, yeah, these are my people because they're all just a bunch of guys like me. But inside, I just feel discomfort. I just feel like, mm, I don't know. These, I don't know if they fit in here. Bowling alley, yes. Ski slopes. <sighs> now, those of you who are second generation ski slope folk, you're going, what's the problem? Ask your parents. Ask about the first generation of ski slope folk. The deal is, They had forgotten completely the connection they had with the land and the sheep. Now it was inappropriate for a shepherd to come into the synagogue or the temple because they were always ritually unclean. It was virtually impossible for them to get through a day without being unclean. And yet here is Jesus, our Lord, the Lord, my shepherd. This text was actually controversial in the first century. There was rabbinic argument about God calling himself a shepherd. How could God call himself a shepherd? A shepherd's always unclean. How could the Lord be our shepherd? He's unclean. God can't be unclean. How could they do that? Blah, 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 blah. Theologians love to argue about silly little things like this, and that's what they were doing. First century, time of Jesus, this was a controversial passage. This was a controversial passage. It, it, the only thing that is, is, is an equivalent in our, in our group, uh, in, our, in, in our particular denomination, is that, that uh, you are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should perish, is a controversial passage. How could it be that you're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God? How can it be that it's not of works, lest any man should boast? How could that be? Shouldn't I be doing something? Yes. Believing. When the Gospels tell us that Jesus was hanging out with sinners, one of the groups in the classification sinners is this group. Shepherds. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, you put your own list on that, didn't you? You have a list for who the sinners are, right? As soon as that gets gets thrown in there, you have your list. You you just classify, oh, I know who those people are. I I know what sinners look like, and you have your list. How many of you had shepherds? We don't put the shepherds in there. 
But shepherds are considered in the classification of sinners because they're always touching things that are unclean. Therefore, they're always unclean. Therefore, they must be sinners because God wouldn't make somebody who wasn't a sinner have to do that job. Get it? Get the logic? Jeremias documents that shepherds could not fulfill, this is very important, judicial offices, couldn't be judges, or be admitted in court as what? Witnesses. A babe is born in Bethlehem who happens to be God in human flesh. And the angel appears not to the high priest, not to Herod, not to anybody in leadership. He wanders out in the field. He looks for a bunch of guys tending sheep and he says, I'll talk to those guys. And the angels in heaven are going, really? These are the best guys you can find. Those guys. You know nobody believes those guys. They can't even be legal witnesses. You're going to make them the first witnesses to this story? And God says, I got this. I think God has to do that a lot. I think he has to say it to me a lot. Hey, 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 I got this. I got this. I know what I'm doing. I am God. You are not. Let's keep that straight. As long as we understand that part, we'll be all right for a little while. This is a very interesting thing to me. They had what was called the Migdal Edar. This is a tower in the fields of Bethlehem where the shepherds were. So that if the priests had to come down and oversee what was going on with the shepherds, I'll tell you why the priests would go down in a minute. Well, if the priests had to go down, they didn't have to get down on the ground where the sheep and the shepherds actually were. They could go into the tower, look at what was going on, and shout orders from up there. Hey, that sheep over there, bring that one over here. Okay, you, and, and then you follow me, five paces behind will be good, and we're going off to the temple with that, okay? Get that one, no, not the, the other one next to it, that one. Yeah, now come, let's go. And they didn't have to sully themselves with shepherded. They could sully themselves only with the things in their own head. Now that we're in the same com- country, shepherds slash sinners, slash unclean guys, slash people who could not go into the temple or the synagogue lest they defile it, slash people who were not invited to the homes of people who were those nice kinds of people, slash people who were never going to have the opportunity to be invited to a nice dinner at someone's home. They had to eat with those other people like them. They had to eat with those other shepherds like them. Their food was unclean. Their hands were unclean. Their clothes were unclean. Their lives were unclean. Their families were unclean. Their children were unclean. Their dog, their cat, their sheep, their goats. Everything about them was unclean because they'd been there because they had contact with it. The shepherds were out in the same country living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. By the way, good argument for why this didn't happen at winter. Because they don't watch the sheep by night in the winter times. It's too darn cold. So they, they take them in. They go to more sheltered locations in the winter time. Shepherds don't hang out in the fields with their sheep in the winter time. Just like people take their cattle into their barns in the winter time here. People bring their animals into more sheltered locations here because it's too cold in the winter time. So this December 25th thing has another uh, nail in its coffin. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. Jesus chooses his own witnesses. God chooses his own witnesses, and he rarely chooses the expected. So look at the person sitting in your chair and realize you're in this line. This is your lineage and mine. 
We have a direct blood link to these guys. Lest, as the Bible says, we think too highly of ourselves, let us remind ourselves that we've been selected as witnesses. And if the past witnesses are any testimony to the present witnesses, we have nothing to brag about except Jesus. Isn't that good enough? Isn't that what we should be talking about? Oh, Lord, a name above all names. When Jesus decides to come out of the tomb and the angel decides to announce the resurrection, he announces it first to a lady who had been a lady of the evening or the afternoon or any other time she could get a paycheck for her activities, Mary Magdalene. If there's anybody on your sinner's list, she made it. Right? Tax collectors and sinners, she made it. Shepherds may not have, but she made it. Right? When God chooses his witnesses, first witnesses, I think is a testimony to all of us to not to get too proud of being a witness, just to be proud of what we talk about. Because it's easy for the witness to get cocky about his position as a witness instead of recognizing that he has no value in himself except that he tell the story of what he's seen, of what she's encountered, that moment. Shepherds and a woman. Shepherds, the lowest rung of the ladder in their Jewish culture. And if there's anyone below them, it's Mary. Isn't God cool? Don't you love the fact that when you dive into these stories and you start to walk the pages of the Bible through carefully, you start realizing that it's always been the same thing. Humble yourself and follow me and tell others to come. Humble yourself and follow me and tell others to come. I'll I'll pick some people who have already been humbled because the world has humbled them into their position and I'll tell them the story and they can tell others to come. A Samaritan woman runs into Jesus one day at a well. A Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman. So hated by her own community that she has to sneak out to get water. She meets Jesus. She becomes the evangelist to the Samaritans and her whole village becomes followers of Jesus. He picks his witnesses and he doesn't pick the kings. He picks the people on the bottom rungs. Because we don't get confused about what we're talking about. We weren't here. We were never invited to talk about ourselves except as we were transformed and blessed by Jesus. The story has more. The flocks around Bethlehem are very important. This is not an ordinary flock of sheep around Bethlehem. Bethlehem is close proximity to Jerusalem. It's a very important place for the raising of sheep. Specific sheep are raised here. Every evening and every morning, the daily sacrifice must be offered. That tower I told you about, every evening and every morning, a sheep had to be selected for those offerings. And a, and a priest had to go down, walk out on that tower, find a shepherd, have him pick a, pick a particular sheep, and bring it in for the morning sacrifice. A sheep that was raised for the purpose of sacrifice, perfectly acceptable for, a, for, the, for the priesthood to have as an offering, perfectly acceptable without blemish as an offering for the covering of the sins of the people. And Jesus was born among these shepherds in that place as the offering for man. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, is born in Bethlehem. 
It's the place where he should have been born because that's where the sacrifice is born. That's where the offering is born. That's where the daily sacrifice was selected from. Beyond that point, during the holidays, particularly during Passover, the whole area around Bethlehem was full of sheep. These were the priests' sheep. These were sheep that the priests had said would be okay for offering. They, those sheep were all over the hills and valleys, and shepherds would be selected to keep track of those sheep to make sure that they didn't hurt themselves, didn't get a blemish on them so that they could still be offered as the Passover lamb. Do you see how the Bible starts to fit together? This is what I mean. Watching that guy preach the series a second time, it just started to make sense. It started to come together. The pieces, laying upon the pieces, laying upon the pieces. And the more you dig under the surface of the text, you start finding more and more layers that fit together, more and more foundational pieces that you can anchor into and hold on to and know your faith is legit. And so it is that the first witness to the newborn Messiah were the men who were charged with the care of the lambs of God. And the angels greet them. And an angel choir sings to them. And they run off to find this baby. They probably didn't find him in the first stable they looked in. You know, the Bible has them going following the star. No, no, no. The Magi followed the star. These guys just had an angel announcement, and then they were sent to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem wasn't huge. There weren't thousands of these little stables to look in. But they bang along till they find a stable with a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. They knew by the description that this was going to be a poor family because swaddling clothes were the wrappings of the poor. These are torn off pieces of garment, a square torn off of a robe with a, with a, a piece wrapped on, or still on it that you could wrap the baby in. Find a poor baby, a poor family in a manger. You found the Messiah. How bizarre that must have been as they ran toward Bethlehem. They said, they said swaddling clothes, right? Yeah, he said swaddling clothes. And in a manger, right? Not like in a bed, but in a manger, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what they said. That's like my kid. Why would they have God do that? Why would the Messiah be? That's more like a shepherd being born out in the field. What in the world? Whatever it is, let's go find him. And the worshipers start to line up. The worshipers line up. These shepherds run into this place they finally find. They fall on their knees and they worship the king and they go out to tell the story of what they found. The worshipers begin to line up. Eight days later, the child is circumcised. A few days, well, to the 40th day, they show up at the temple to offer the sacrifices and out comes these two older people who have been there. Please, older folks, do not think that because of your age you have been disqualified for being used by God. The woman in this story is over a hundred years old when she gives testimony that this is the Messiah. Simeon in this story is, is old enough that he's just waiting to die. He says, next thing must be death, but I've seen the Messiah. It's cool. Which, by the way, is what happens when I go to a hospital bed of somebody who's at their last breath and they've seen the Messiah. They say, I've seen the Messiah. It's cool. It's okay. Sometime later, months probably, come some foreign leaders from a foreign land and they bow down and they bring gifts and they worship the Messiah. 
The story is a story that invites you and I to come fall before this manger, before this amazing, amazing presentation of God in worship. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, it seems so easy to take this story as if it's a fable. pray that you would help us to take it as an anchor. An anchor for our faith. And an anchor for our worship. Worship of the one whose name is above all names. In whose name, Jesus, we pray. While shepherds watch their flocks by night, all seated on the ground, the angel of the Lord came down, and glory shone around. Strong to say.